This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. In this month's episode, Speaking of Oral History, we pay a visit to the Oral History Association's annual meeting in Long Beach, California, to hear from several conference participants about their experiences. Let's listen. All right, we're here at Oral History Association annual meeting with the president of the association, Annie Valk. Annie has been involved in oral history for many years. Those of you listening to this podcast should check out the Behind the Veil project, which she was involved in at Duke University for a long time. Annie, it's good to see you. Likewise. Good to see you, Ben. Annie, this is the 50th anniversary of the association, which is really exciting. But as you look, as I look through the program, there's so many people thinking about what is oral history now compared to what it was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you've been thinking about this too. What is it that's vibrant and exciting about this field now? It's a great question, and it's a question that a number of the sessions and panels at the conference are thinking about in various ways. And I could say that um, even just thinking about the past 25 years, which is around as long as I've been coming to the conference, that part of what oral history is now that's different from then is that it's increasingly interdisciplinary. And so at this conference, there are lots of people coming out of different kinds of traditions that are using oral narrative in one way or another and are um, coming out of community organizing or coming out of English and literature and thinking about oral history as text and coming out of anthropology and ethnography as well as history. So that interdisciplinarity, I think, at this point in the organization's history is really being embraced and seen as a strength. Uh, And that's somewhat different from when I started doing this work where I felt like there was a more deliberate effort of historians to be doing gatekeeping and making sure that people's interviews and practices were really grounded in history and in asking historical questions. The other big thing that's being talked about this year, as it has been for quite a while, is the impact of technology on the work that we do. And this conference, that's coming up, especially in lots of conversations about privacy and access access, and how those things are often in tension uh, in thinking about projects like um, the Civil Rights in Black and Brown project in Texas, where they're really privileging access and thinking about how to put interviews or clips of interviews online and make them broadly available to people. And yet that also raises lots of issues about privacy and who makes the decisions about what goes online. And once it goes online, we have no idea how people might use that. So what are the ethical considerations in thinking about making interviews available in that way? So I'd say those are two of the things that are really bubbling to the surface right now. You know, I notice it may be because of the political climate we're in or what's gone on over the past couple of years with Black Lives Matter, etc. It seems to me there's a, a greater willingness over the past few years to put an activist bent on these oral history projects to be very overt about the activist 
aims and goals of them. Do you think that's true, or is that just me reading into the climate that we're in and, and reading it that way? Yeah. No, I think that's very true. I don't, I don't think that's new. If you go back and you look at oral history's roots, its roots in the academy really uh, trace back to the 1960s and the 1970s where people are seeing oral history as having political purposes as well as scholarly purposes and really thinking about how to uncover stories that hadn't been told before. Uh, And then oral history and its roots in community work that there's also always been a strong uh, component of that that is focused around thinking about organizing and how to strengthen communities or revitalize them in various ways through the sharing of stories about their history and their and their past. Now I would say again digital technology is making those kinds of efforts possible in different ways. So it's pushing the boundaries of what oral history is and thinking about oral oral history projects that are collecting history as it happens as opposed to going back and looking at things and where lots of oral historians are documenting the Black Lives Matter movement and other uh, contemporary political movements and thinking immediately about how can we put this collecting of stories to use in perpetuating the movements that we care about. Yeah, that's great. Annie, thanks so much for sharing some time with us and your thoughts about the Oral History Association. Congratulations on a great conference. Thank you, and I'm, I'm glad you're here, and I hope that uh, people will check out the conference if they can uh, and how it exists online after the conference ends. Great. Thank nice. you. We're here at the Oral History Association 50th Anniversary Annual Meeting, and we wanted to check out what some of the students who are attending the conference think. And we have Mark Garcia and Analia Cabral from Cal State Fullerton, people we know well from our history department and the Center for Oral and Public History. Mark, Analia, is this the first time you've been to the Oral History Association? Uh, uh, yes, it's the first time I've been here, yes. Yes, and it is mine too. And so, has it met your expectations? Have there been surprises? What are some things that have jumped out at you here? I think that, for me, it's the similar struggles of um, wanting to make sure that these stories are heard in a way and, like, asking your question, like, what is the purpose of what we're doing? That's something, the congruency that a lot of people are dealing with. And for myself, um, uh, this semester I'm taking digital history classes and um, uh, infusing the, a lot of it, we're talking about the historiography of the various subjects out there and just to see the dialogue between the different panels uh, between each other and something I'm taking back uh, when I write um, my um, blogs for my digital history class, you know, how we include other uh, students in our class in, in conversation. It's, it's just good to hear it at the conference level too, to hear other uh, professors, everyone in the industry, continuing the conversation uh, throughout the various subjects that are being uh, brought into this uh, conference. And figuring out what to do with the material after you've got it, right? A lot of yeah. these panels are discussing that. Could yeah. you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, because a lot of the time people feel like, well, you're creating this interview and then you're digitizing, maybe giving it back to the narrator and then putting it in an archive where 
you know, most of the time where I have, I'm talking about interviews, it's usually with my friends. And they're like, wait, there's an actual, like, interview that you can listen to that's in a library that's, like, you know, a history archive. Then, then I think that's when it was like, okay, what are we doing with it? We need to, we need to start bringing it back into the communities and talking about it then. Exactly, and I think there's a lot of conversations at this whole uh, conference so far is um, bringing it out to the community because, you know, a lot of it, you know, we have the transcripts and then we just use it for our manuscript. Uh, but now, you know, it's just the, uh, this shared authority uh, with um, various people in the community now um, to, you know, we're not just writing just to other scholars, we're writing to the public so they can have, get that action out of what we're writing about. It's almost like doing history in real time, isn't it? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> it used to be we talked about a twenty-year lag. We can't. We don't really want to deal with anything until enough time has gone by to get perspective. But that yeah. doesn't seem to be the way that this field is thinking at all, does it? No, not at all. No. Yeah. I mean, going when I was growing up in my high school history classes, we never even got to even the nineties, right? All that political. Um, um, events that were happening then so you kind of just thought well history was always you know started way back when and then ended maybe in the 60s and now it's more like no it's happening as we're speaking yeah exactly and it's here to, uh, there's some in the panel some guest speakers in the panels um, that have been written that have been used in oral histories and she always said um, these were always just in the library not for my group of people we didn't know but bringing it together these oral histories now I know I'm included and then we can get these out to my community not just for that scholarly group that's continuing to write in it for themselves and for their own prestige it's, it's, it's about us and then I can share it to my other groups and friends and people that are involved in these organi you know, organizations uh, what we're doing and um, the purpose we're trying to uh, spread to the community it's running community so what do you hope to do you're you're taking history oh that's the question i shouldn't have asked right <laughs> that's the question uh, your families want to know right um but but how you've been involved in this work now and you've gotten experience on projects how do you imagine yourself being part of this in the future i'm planning on being a high school history teacher mm -hmm. so i'm want to have the students create ethnographies and create their own oral histories um, with themselves, with their family, with their community, and then using what we have and seeing history in a different form with oral history being validated. Yeah, I'm on the public history uh, route, so to include some of these oral histories in my own uh, exhibitions, uh, hopefully in museums. And just to, um, as I always say, history is everywhere and it's, and it's all of us. And, you know, I think that's a common thing I get when I've done oral histories. Uh, the narrator says, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not part of history, but you are. And I think uh, bringing those out and using my exhibitions can, you know, just tell that story that it, it is everywhere and it's all part of us. Well, your students, Analia, and your visitors to your museum, Mark, are going to be benefiting from your experience. Thanks for Thank joining us, Analia Cabral and Mark Garcia of Cal State Fullerton. All right, this is Outspoken here at the 50th Oral History Association Annual Meeting in Long Beach. And we have a distinguished graduate of Cal State University and a former uh, oral historian at the Center for Oral and Public History, Amanda Tweez. Amanda, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. And you're here all the way from San Diego. 
right? Yes, I am currently working at the San Diego History Center as an oral historian there. So how did you get from Cal State Fullerton to someplace 3,000 miles away and then all the way back down to San Diego? How did that work? <laughs> I don't know. It's like a circuitous route here. Um, I had a great experience in the program at Fullerton, and I decided that I was going to apply for a PhD program. And my project that I'm working on for my program there is oral history-based, and luckily that gave me reason to come back to California, and I found this wonderful position, and I'm able to continue doing oral histories for both academic and for a nonprofit institution. So let me get this straight. You're doing your PhD at University of Massachusetts while you are doing an oral history program at San Diego. That's correct. So you're busy, in other words. (laughs) Yes, but this is like a fun vacation. You get to rejuvenate and hear all about the stories from the field and other people working on similar projects. And you're in the field. You're doing oral history projects. What's happening there in San Diego that you're involved in? So our program is the Legacy Oral History Program at the San Diego History Center, and we're really focusing on trying to diversify our collections. We've been collecting oral history since 1956, but only recently have we started doing digital interviews, which makes a big difference, but also really attempting to get the broad swath of San Diego life, because it's not just politicians. We have artists, we have a huge Chicano activist community, we have a lot of people involved in border relations there. So San Diego is a really unique opportunity to get stories about not only the city and California and the the United States, but also an international context. So it's been around a long time, but you're you're the one working on it now and trying to build it up into a a much larger project, right? Yep. Currently it's a department of one, (laughs) but it does give me the opportunity to take a lot of the lessons I learned at Cough. And I'm learning still from different organizations and try to build up the program into hopefully a really big, really helpful archive of interviews for people to learn from. When you come to a conference like this, what's exciting about it? What sorts of things do you learn? What sorts of conversations do you have that you can bring back with you to your job as an oral historian? For me, the theme of this conference, and probably previous ones as well, is really accessibility. How do we take all these great stories that we've collected and make them available for people? I took a podcasting workshop, and that has a lot of potential for oral history, as you guys well know. But also, what can you put online, and how can we contact community organizations to get them involved in our program? And I think those conversations are really important to understanding what use oral history is and what it could be in the future. So let's, before I let you go, let's go back. What got you interested in oral and public history in the first place? Because you, you came to our program. I remember you coming to our program. And then you really got excited about this as, as an important part of your, your career. What, what, what happened? How did you get into this? If I had to think one moment, I'd have to say it was Farmers to Flyers. <laughs> it was an exhibit I worked on as a graduate student. So it was... Um, Pulled by, or, sorry, uh, information was pulled from undergrads and graduate researchers, and then as a graduate student team, we created this exhibit. And there were a lot of oral histories involved, and I ended up working at the center and listening to oral histories on a daily basis. Even before I understood that I was going to be an oral historian, I was listening to these stories and connecting with these people in a different way that. I had never imagined, and I think oral history in particular is very important because it makes big history personal and makes it really digestible. 
Now, before we let you go, give us a hint about what your dissertation is about. <laughs> Not about this. <laughs> I am studying Old West theme parks in California, particularly Knott's Berry Farm, Calico Ghost Town, and Frontier Village. And I am looking at the ways in which these theme parks have shaped California identity and history and how people have gone to these places in order to learn from them and how they're continuing to remember them. That's the memory and oral history becomes a big part of all this. Well, Amanda, you sound really busy. Really, it's really exciting the work that you're doing. Thanks for spending some time with us here on Outspoken and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. All right, we're back. This is Outspoken at the Oral History Association 50th anniversary meeting here in Long Beach, California. And I'm here with a frequent guest on Outspoken, the director of the Center for Oral and Public History, Natalie Fusakis. Natalie, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here yet again. And you're here this week in a special capacity. I think you have a leadership position in the Oral History Association, something like incoming vice president. What does that mean? What do you do? Uh, I just got elected first vice president of the organization. So it's the beginning of a three-year term on the leadership of uh, the Oral History Association. So this year I'll be first vice president. Next year I will plan the conference, which is two years from now in Montreal. Um, and then the year after I plan the conference, I will be the president of the Oral History Association. So that means you have more work to do as the years go on, right? This is quite a commitment. It is, but I have a special place in my heart for this organization. Uh, my first academic conference I ever attended was the Oral History Association Conference in 1996 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And from that moment on, I was hooked. So it's been 20 years or so for you, right? Yes, I've, I've missed a few, but um, I've tried. If I want to make it to a conference every year, it's this one. When you think about the changes in the field over the past 20 years or so, what, what do you notice that's different from maybe what it was back in 1996? Well, here's what I think is the same, and then I'll tell you what I think is different. Sure. What I think is the same is that you have this great coming together of community historians, academic historians, uh, filmmakers, uh, journalists, anthropologists. It's really an interdisciplinary and a conference that really does a good job of bridging the academic world and the outside community. How it's changed, I mean, technology is the most obvious. Uh, the fact that you're recording me on a phone right now is a huge difference between how I would have done the recording in 1996, which would have been cassette. Um, I think there's been a huge change in access to the interviews. Um, you know, in 1996, I still think the common thing was people were collecting oral histories and then sticking them in an archive and not disseminating those stories out into the public. And I really do think that this organization and oral history programs like ours, the center, have really made an effort to find ways to not have the interviews just sit in the archives, but to actually bring those stories out into the public. Is there a project or two that you learned something more about this week that is really exciting and makes you feel good about where the profession's going? Well, certainly, um, we were just in a session this morning um, on civil rights and black and brown, and they really 
were in some ways a model to what I want to do with the WPA project, the Women, Politics, and Activism project that we're working on now, in the sense of really creating a, a searchable, usable archive for people. And I would say the, the second thing that I've seen in her is I, when I was on my, a panel yesterday, I was really interested in the ways that people are not just recording the past, but really there's been a move to record the present as it's happening, and I think that's also really a change, and that's exciting. So I was listening to somebody who was interviewing feminists who are feminists in the digital age. What does it mean to have this in Southern California where you do your work? There must be a lot of people from around the country, and you're getting to sort of show off the, the local scene here, mural history scene? Well, I mean, I think it's great for all of us because it makes it really easy for us to have so many of our students come over here. I think we've given the students at Cal State Fullerton a, a great experience to be able, even if just for one day, to come and see what a conference like this is about. Um, and then for people to see to sort of see and learn about the local region, I've been answering all kinds of questions about Orange County, about Los Angeles, about living and working in LA. So it's been it's been really delightful. So you've got responsibilities this week, but you're also looking to the future. What what do you hope to take away from the conference when all is said and done? I think what I always take away it always reinvigorates me for the kind of work that I do. It gives me new ideas of what I want to do at our center, and it's giving me ideas for what I want to do when I plan the conference in Montreal in, in 2018. Great. Well, maybe Outspoken will be there. We don't know. But thank you, Natalie Kosekis, for joining us from the Oral History Association 50th Annual Meeting in Long Beach. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Outspoken, the podcast of the Center for Oral and Public History. This is Benjamin Cothra. Our episodes are produced and edited by Carrie Rael. You may find all Outspoken episodes on our website, coph.fullerton.edu, where you can also learn more about the narrators featured on this episode. And we invite you to stop by, visit us at the Center for Oral and Public History, located at Pollock Library South, room 363 at Cal State Fullerton. Email us at coph at fullerton.edu, tweet us at coph underscore csuf, or find us on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Outspoken.